Welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan. Uh, as always, thanks for watching. Please hit like and subscribe. So on today's show, I will be talking to Professor Lily Geismer. She has a new book out called Left Behind that looks at the legacy of the New Democrats, uh, which of course is the wing of the Democrats that took power in the 90s and famously includes uh, former President Bill Clinton, among others. And I'm talking to Lily about um, how and why the New Democrats pushed policies like free trade, uh, micro lending, charter schools, and of course, welfare reform, and how their particular brand of policymaking uh, continues to shape the Democratic Party today. So definitely stay tuned for that. Uh, for my segment, I'm going to be talking about weed. Uh, specifically, there have been a few new pushes to legalize weed at the federal level. Uh, I should say my state of New Mexico just legalized weed earlier this month. And so all of that got me sort of thinking about um, how lots of states are now trying to roll out these so-called cannabis social equity programs, which are programs that are theoretically supposed to make sure that the same people who were you know, harmed by past marijuana convictions and the war on drugs are now in a position to uh, open weed businesses or otherwise benefit from the legal weed industry. So obviously, I think that sounds like a nice idea, but I will be making some comments um, in a little bit about why cannabis equity basically keeps falling short. And before we get to all of that, I am very excited to be talking to an up-and-coming politician who is running a very scrappy grassroots campaign in the state of Pennsylvania with the backing of several labor unions. So let's dive in. All right, so I am now joined by total stranger Paul Prescott. Uh, Paul, I think at this point, uh, everybody watching The Jacobin Show knows that you are running for a state Senate seat in Pennsylvania's 8th District. Among other reasons, that is why you're no longer a regular on the show. But I did want to have you on the show to talk about some of the specifics of your campaign, uh, because I think it's a really interesting one. Uh, there's a lot going on. And because it's a state level race, I think we aren't really hearing as much about it in the media as we would for, you know, something like a national Senate seat. So just to quickly cover the basics of your campaign, you are up against an incumbent who has held the seat for, I think, over 20 years. And what I wanted to focus on is over the last few years, I think on the left, we've really seen quite a few progressive challengers take on long term incumbents, right? Incumbents who are, you know, a little more centrist, a little more moderate. And that's been met with varying degrees of success. Now, for your campaign, um, I think what's interesting is a lot of the progressive challengers we've seen in the past have really started out with the backing of kind of traditional progressive groups like the Justice Democrats or the Working Families Party or, you know, Our Revolution or DSA. And just to be clear, you have also gotten some of those endorsements along the way. But what's really unique about your campaign is you began by seeking out labor endorsements. And uh, even beyond that, several of the union that you brought on board early on were blue collar unions. And I think that that's actually kind of unusual for, you know, a progressive challenger, at least the progressive challengers that we've seen in the last couple of years. So I just wanted to start by asking, you know, why did you choose to go about it this way? And how did you make it happen? Like, I don't think you just showed up to, you know, uh, the door of the Teamsters and you were like, I'm Labor Paul, endorse me. <laughs> how did it all go down? Yeah, well, first, thanks for having me on. It's really great to be back home um, and, and doing this again. Um, yeah, well, there's many places I can start. Yeah, you know, unfortunately, the teamsters were not watching the Jackman show. They didn't know I was Labor Paul. Um, shame on them. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I guess I'll start by saying, in a sense, it was like 10 years in the making. Um, just because, and what feels good about this campaign, I mean, politics is not about feeling good. But I think what feels good and effective about this campaign is it really does feel like an organic outgrowth of the work I've already been doing for years, um, in some ways that our DSA chapter has been doing work for years um, with this close partnership with labor. Um, so, you know, most of my life uh, 
engaging politically. I, I kind of marked the starting date back to two, 2009, 2010, when I supported a, a local strike um, at the university I was going to. I've been heavily involved in labor and building these relationships. Um, and that kind of definitely accelerated these last four or five years for different reasons. Um, part of it was uh, engagement with DSA. Um, part of it was certain flashpoints, you know, like COVID-19. I think um, there was a big need around workplace health and safety and an uptick in just activity around that. Um, of course, the Postal Service attacks in the during the 2020 presidential election. And actually, you know, in all seriousness, the work we had done around defending against those attacks brought us with a close relationship with the local um, American Postal Workers Union, which is one of the endorsing locals. So it really has just come from, you know, like you said, it wasn't showing up in a room one day and making a great speech. Um, I don't think I'm that effective as a, as a speaker. Uh, it really was this work and these relationships over the years. And, um, and also say this, um, as people might already know, often, you know, labor will just back the incumbent um, mm -hmm. in races like this. And there's, I think, many reasons for these. Uh, some of these reasons are understandable, um, if, if frustrating at the same time, and I'm not yeah. defending it all the time. But, you know, oftentimes with these Democrats, when it's all said and done, you look at their voting record, it's pretty good when it comes to labor. Um, and, you know, the fear is always, well, if we back the wrong person, if this incumbent wins, uh, how will they retaliate against us? Right. Um, and you can imagine these egomaniac uh, elected officials, most of them, that that's a real thing. Um, so often they don't want to take that risk. So it's really heartening to see that they're not doing that in this race. And I also say this, I mean, I think there's always some, some strokes of luck in any campaign. Um, and I, I would say this is a combination of luck and political skill. But, you know, there was some good timing, you know, in mm -hmm. some of major unions like the Teamsters, um, District Council 33, which is the second largest union in Philly, representing blue collar city workers like sanitation workers that have endorsed me. You know, they went through recent leadership changes in the last few years. And these were leaders that um, I had developed a close relationship with before they ran for office. And so now in office, you know, it's they know I'm not just someone coming to them at the last minute. Um, they know what I stand for. And these are people who are just more open to taking a little bit of a chance. And like, I really can't tell you if the old guard would have been in power in these unions, would they have backed me? And then what that helped to do is establish credibility early. And I think it's kind of like a train that picks up momentum. And the more they see early on, you have these backing, the more safe it feels for other unions to do so. So I think, again, you could call it luck, but it was also, I think, just, again, the relationship building over years that kind of set the stage early and I think allowed for right. these other endorsements and, and things to come in. But, you know, again, it really could not have happened without, again, I think a decade of work beforehand of just showing that, um, you know, I am serious about labor. Um, no one can question that, you know, just, just given the work over the years. Um, and again, not just through Jackman, but, you know, through supporting labor like uh, on the ground. Right. So you garnered a few of these union endorsements very early on, uh, but we're a couple months into your campaign. Uh, your primary is coming up on May 17th, so you basically got a month left. So what has Labor's involvement in your campaign looked like so far? Uh, I assume they're, you know, throwing some money your way. Is there anything else that, that the unions are doing? Yeah. So, you know, financial contributions um, and, you know, um, hitting doors for us. Although, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll be honest and and I, I think I should be honest just for people to get a real inside look. You know, the challenge is, you know, for unions, they, of course, their main priority is not um, electoral campaigns. They're right. dealing with their own membership issues. So, you know, the challenge is turning these endorsements into like getting members to canvas a lot because, you know, honestly, they have a lot of other stuff going on. I think for most unions and most people in general, you know, we don't start paying attention to elections until, I don't know, a month, two months out, realistically. Mm -hmm. So obviously, when you're in the campaign like me, you know, I'm thinking about December is feeling late in the game, but it's really not for most regular people and even unions. So, um, you know, that that's a challenge, just that like unions have other priorities besides electoral politics, their own members. So, you know, it's been um, a challenge so far translating some of that support into knocking doors. But as it's getting closer, that's picking up. Um, mm -hmm. You know, people may know we first had to get on the ballot. So we had to get a certain amount of signatures um, to get on the ballot. And we had Teamsters who were able to get paid time off to help us do that. 
Um, some unions, like um, Aftsman District Council 33 and 47, as city workers, part of the city charter, actually bans them from coordinating with the campaign. Mm-hmm. So they are conducting their own independent canvases for us, for their slate of candidates, which includes me. Um, and also, you know, I think the word of mouth really helps too. You know, we've had a, a lot of cool experiences with canvassing, you know, we'll knock on the door of a union member and they can see on their flyer, they're like, oh, well, if my union endorsed you, like, I'm <laughs> going to back you. So that's effective. Right. Um, we're planning for election day, you know, having union members covering the polling places, even simple stuff, like even the bare minimum of sending out a mailer to your members recommending who they vote for actually goes a long way. Again, yeah. most ordinary people might wake up on election day and look at the mailer and be like, okay, that's who I'm going to take my cue from. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's a variety of levels of support um, that, uh, but also, you know, I think it helps connecting with people just on the doors to say, you know, cause honestly, most working people still probably don't know what DSA is um, or even working families party or sunrise movement, but it does help to say like, Hey, the postal workers union endorsed me. I think that connects in a way that it's hard to with, with other groups that just aren't as well known by people. Yeah. I want to ask you now about uh, the money in the race, right? Because we had alluded to kind of some of these like union donations a little bit. Um, but I want to make it clear that it, it sounds like your campaign is, you know, you've got a little bit of the union donations, but your campaign is really powered mostly by small donations, right? Like you're not taking money from any corporations or billionaires or, you know, uh, super PACs. Um, but I do get the sense that there is a lot of big money in the race. I mean, obviously you're in Philadelphia. Uh, there, there are a lot of wealthy people there. I know that there are quite a few charter school PACs, which I don't think are supporting you. Uh, You, (laughs) Labor Paul, a public school teacher, I'm sorry to say, like, I have a feeling you're not getting that money. Uh, Talk a little bit about what kind of money is in the race. And then, um, yeah, just talk about like where you're getting your money. Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, it's a big money race. Um, You know, the state Senate seats, these are larger seats than state house. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially my opponent, you know, um, very big in the school privatization. He gets big money from PACs like you alluded to, uh, especially this one guy named Jeffrey Yass, who is a billionaire, um, literally, and is the biggest funder of actually Republican Party candidates in Pennsylvania. But he's also my opponent, mm. who is a Democrat, uh, his biggest funder. He has a lot of PACs, you know, this straight line connection to Betsy DeVos. Um, he's also funded like voter suppression efforts in the state. So they're pouring big money into my opponent. Um, other PACs related to him are doing that. Um, and, you know, on our end, we know we're not going to out fundraise someone like that. But, you know, I think we've been doing a great job. And like you said, you know, we've gotten some union contributions, but honestly, not much. Um, so we have over 1,400 unique donors. Um, we've raised over $230,000. And like the median contribution is around uh, $50. Um, yeah. So that just shows you like what what is going into this, um, you know, some other, you know, organizations besides unions as well can contribute. Um, but a lot of it is just grassroots um, fundraising. Um, so and yeah, I mean, I, I can't wait till we have publicly funded elections. I mean, it's uh, especially now being on the other side, you see like literally that if, if we don't get this money, I can't have staff. I can't have a building, an office. Right. We can't have literature. So it really does power everything on this campaign. Um, and so, and you know, of course, this is why the party just pre- uh, prefers people who can self-fund themselves. Um, right. But it really is telling, I mean, um, at, at our first ca- campaign finance report, they put out uh, a graph showing like we, our campaign literally has seven times as many donors as my opponent, uh, which just shows hmm. he's relying on a few wealthy people yep. writing big checks. And um, we, you know, have a much broader array of support. Um, but yeah, you know, the money factor, unfortunately, is just dominant. Um, you know, that's why candidates yeah. spend hours every single day. People probably listening have gotten calls from me uh, begging <laughs> them for money. I apologize about that. Um, all right. Well, I, you know, I wanted to ask a broader question, too, which is, why, why, why run for office, Paul? Uh, I mean, we, we know, we all know on the show, you, uh, you, you are a public school teacher. You're very passionate about teaching and also passionate about being active in your teacher's union. So why not stay a teacher or, or uh, the host of a YouTube show, to be honest? Uh, what, what exactly is going on in your district that made you think I need to do this? Yeah, that's a great question. And I mean, I kind of zoom out to answer that first. Um, what makes this kind of ironic is I've just always been someone that 
has not been that active in electoral politics. You know, I vote and stuff. I've always been someone and even still believe that being in the labor movement is really the most important um, thing. You know, my line shop stewards are the most important uh, position in this country. Um, And, you know, and I still believe that. I mean, but I definitely was inspired by candidates like Bernie um, and other local candidates that Mm -hmm. show we can't ignore the electoral realm. And, you know, realistically, if you think about other countries that have Labor Party, Social Democratic parties, Socialist parties, um, as flawed as they might be, then, you know, there's, I think, a more mature understanding that you need to have both. Uh, we can't ignore the state and we need to get our people in the state um, mm-hmm. in, in different ways. And there should be kind of a virtuous cycle there. Um, and that that arena is important. And I think especially the right kind of candidates, if they can truly reflect um, like a labor coalition, we need to run those things. And I think especially looking at state legislatures are really important. Um, and we know how important the federal level is, but you know, it's at the state where you can, you know, fight austerity, where you can start to try to tax the rich, um, you know, mm-hmm. c- create union jobs. You know, there's a lot of revenue to work with. Um, that's where a lot of our public education funding is dealt with is at the state level. Um, so, and you know, and these are seats that are not as overwhelming to try to contest for as Congress. Um, so I think this is an area the left really um, should look at. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it kind of just struck me at a certain point of, thinking about this wave of left candidates we've had these last five and six years and kind of thought what you alluded to earlier of like, it would be really nice if we can get more people straight out of the labor movement, people who could maybe start their campaign with that coalition. And um, it sounds, when you say it, it sounds very egotistical, but I kind of felt like, you know, this kind of makes sense for me in this moment, um, especially and in specifically my district, you know, some of the highest, uh, Poverty levels, mm-hmm. poor zip codes, um, some of the toughest issues with development um, that's displacing people, um, you know, public school funding, all uh, environmental issues. You know, um, uh, there's a big portion of the district that's on a floodplain and that's been getting worse as climate change worsens. So there's definitely was a need and specifically who has been in that seat for so long. You know, one of the most conservative Democrats in the state legislature, which is really out of step with the district itself, which I think is fairly progressive in terms of the voters um, and, you know, who he's getting his money from the fact that he's never had anyone primary him. It mm-hmm. literally got the seat handed to him. So I think all these dynamics, it made sense that this person I think is vulnerable. You know, we can mount a serious challenge yeah. um, and we, you know, we, and do this in a way that's, that's reflecting a movement. And I hope afterwards when, when we win is keeping this coalition together of labor of progressives, you know, after we win to, to keep, actually getting these things passed. Uh, Speaking of state level legislation, got to quickly shout out my own state, New Mexico. We recently got free public college in New Mexico. So, you you know, things can definitely happen. Um, On that note, what are kind of some big pieces of legislation that if you were elected, you would want to see go forward? Yeah, um, it's so hard to choose. I I mean, the very basic one is the school funding, um, you know, the legislation, what we call the fair funding formula, which would just more equally distribute education funds. Um, and broadly speaking, um, you know, taxing the rich. Uh, yeah. Pennsylvania, um, you know, like many states, but we, we have a huge problem with um, the corporate tax loopholes. Uh, we're one of the largest natural gas producing states, and they don't even pay a dime in taxes. Um, so really shifting the revenue question in the state. Um, it's got to happen really for anything, I think, really to get actually passed. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, broadly, you know, and this is something that comes up on the Jackman show I cover a lot is the question of, of uh, green jobs, uh, green yeah. union jobs. And I think, again, this is something that we can do a lot at the state level, even if at the federal level, we, we can't get much done. And I've covered this a little bit, but we're seeing more and more states, Illinois, New York, um, Connecticut. Rhode Island now are starting to move towards doing this and doing this with union support from the beginning. So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, that to me is really the would be one of the biggest crowning achievements is getting that coalition of labor together to hammer out, you know, all the jobs we could create in transitioning to clean energy. Um, There's there's really just no limit. Uh, Retrofitting buildings, expanding public transit, geothermal, wind, solar, nuclear, um, there's just all kinds of work that can be created. And 
other states are figuring it out of how to get this together yeah. and start moving it forward. I think there's no reason Pennsylvania can't be next. And I think I'd be someone that's well positioned to kind of bring that coalition uh, together. Um, so I guess that wasn't a priority. I just listed off many things, but, um, you know, this they're is all where, important. <laughs> yeah. This is where we, I think got to be heading to. And, and, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll mention another thing. Um, and I, I've probably said this before, you know, one of the most expire, inspiring things to me about the Sanders campaign and the possibilities wasn't even just about, obviously Pat, he supports great legislation, but this right. or, organizer in chief idea and like, what would that actually look like? For someone in there who's trying to stoke the flames and use their power and resources to help people organize. And um, there's so much that can be done with labor at the local level. You know, mm -hmm. uh, one example is that Amazon is actually coming. There's a fulfillment center coming to Southwest Philadelphia in my district. Um, oh. And we know now the Teamsters at the national level are looking at organizing Amazon. They're one of my strongest supporting unions. Um so playing a role in that fight, and that doesn't require necessarily passing legislation. Like if your party's in the minority, you know, that's not an excuse to not do anything. So working with that union to um, try to organize Amazon, you know, just like we're knocking doors now, we can knock doors of uh, Amazon workers in the district, yeah. telling them to join the union when there is a strike breaking out, you know, mobilizing constituents to support the strike. Um, you know, uh, cracking down on union busting companies, you know, there's a lot of resources you have as an elected official to do mm -hmm. these things. And I think um, that would be something I'd be extremely excited about. Um, it's just like doing work in the district to support labor in a way that most elected officials um, are not going to do. Yeah. All right. So that reminds me, I have just one last bonus question for you. And it's not about your campaign proper, but since you brought up labor organizing and I don't have a chance to talk to Labor Paul as often as I did before, um, I, I got a question for you about the NLRB. So mm -hmm. I feel like there are a lot of interesting changes going on at the NLRB. And I remember way back when you were my co-host uh, and, you know, Biden had just been elected, we were saying, you know, there are obviously reasons to be skeptical of Biden, but at the end of the day, at least his NLRB appointees will be better than Trump's. I think that's borne out. Uh, what do you think? Yeah. And, and and what's going on with labor law right now that's that's particularly exciting? Yeah, you know, I got to say, I feel kind of validated. Um, <laughs> I had this very niche argument that I was harping on about <laughs> how important the election, you know, I would kind of half joke that I was a single issue voter for the NLRB. And I think it's kind of being borne out, um, mm -hmm. you know, really does make a difference. You know, we saw that um, recently the the new general counsel, the head of the NLRB put out an order wanting to ban captive audience meetings yep. for companies. So I think if people don't know, I mean, this is where, you know, companies are just allowed to essentially isolate workers, give them anti-union propaganda. So that would be a big deal if that is passed and that's actually enforced. Um, they've come down with some rulings, I think, in the cases of Amazon and Starbucks organizing against the companies when they've broken the law um, and things like that. So this is a really good sign um, for the future. And, you know, I, always to be clear, it's not the labor law itself that's going to save us. And right. obviously, the Amazon victory, the, the workers themselves won that. Starbucks workers, like, that wouldn't happen without them. But, you know, the, the NROIB can offer crucial decisions in decisive moments to help tip these scales in their favor and just create an overall favorable climate for workers to organize. Um, yeah. We're not in the same moment, so I don't want to draw a parallel, but going back to the 1930s when unions exploded, um, again, it's hard to imagine that happening without a more supportive environment in the state for organizing. Um, you know, again, it was up to the workers themselves, but having a supportive NLRB can go a long way. And right now, you know, we're in this moment Workers feel emboldened. Um, I mean, we've seen that for a while. You know, think back to Striketober. Um, that was more about existing unionized workers striking. But I think more and more workers who are not in a union are emboldened. We're hearing a lot about um, all these different Amazon and Starbucks sites and probably other companies, you know, people trying to file for a union election. So something is spreading. And the more that there's a supportive NLRB there, uh, the, the the greater chance of success. So I think that is, um, yeah, a really good sign. Um, and again, in itself is just an argument for you might as well go in the voting booth and just take 10 minutes to do that or mail in the ballot. 
um, you know, kind of d- does go a long way in, in this case. Well, Paul, great to see you. And uh, we'll talk soon. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, in honor of 420, I will be making some comments about weed and cannabis social equity in just a few minutes. But first, a quick message from our sponsor, Verso Books. Join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes every month, as well as one to three books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month for your first three months, and if you join in April, you'll get these books. Scorched Earth Beyond the Digital Age to a Post-Capitalist World by Jonathan Crary, a polemic on resisting the digital world of late capitalism. Half-Earth Socialism, a plan to save the future from extinction, climate change, and pandemics by Drew Pendergrass and Troy Vettis, a radical manifesto to address climate disaster and guarantee the good life for all. Passages from Antiquity to Feudalism by Perry Anderson, classic work in historical sociology. We Want Everything, a novel by Italian poet and activist Nani Balestrini, plus a bonus book, Russia Without Putin by Tony Wood, to understand the historical context of Russia's war against Ukraine. Become a member today at versobooks.com. We all know at this point that marijuana laws have perpetuated long-running racial disparities in the criminal justice system. According to the ACLU, for instance, a black person is 3.64 times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession than a white person, even though black and white people use marijuana at similar rates. So over the past few years, lawmakers in states that have legalized recreational weed, including New York, Massachusetts, Illinois, California, and elsewhere, have tried to find ways of making sure that the very people who have been the victims of draconian drug laws are now in a position to benefit from the legal weed boom. Enter Cannabis Social Equity, which includes initiatives like states investing tax revenue from weed sales into communities of color or, more commonly, prioritizing people from disadvantaged backgrounds and or with prior marijuana convictions for licenses and loans when it comes to opening dispensaries. I think there are probably genuinely good intentions behind this ongoing interest in correcting the missteps of the war on drugs through these new so-called equity programs. But here's why the rise of cannabis social equity has been nothing short of a neoliberal nightmare. Today, more than two-thirds of Americans want to legalize marijuana, including 83% of Democrats, 71% of independents, and 50% of Republicans. As recreational weed becomes legal in more and more states, lawmakers in those places are also now trying to make sure black and brown people who were disproportionately likely to be targeted during the war on drugs have sufficient representation in the growing legal cannabis industry. So this may sound noble, but cannabis equity programs have been a flop in almost every single state that has tried them. Here's how the business publication Cranes summarized the situation a few years ago. Quote, from California to Colorado to Massachusetts, cannabis rollout programs have been fraught with controversy and criticism. In nearly every state and locale, Activists and budding cannabis entrepreneurs complain that, despite altruistic intentions, the social equity ambitions of legalization have gone awry and the business remains mostly in the hands of wealthier white businessmen. To look at some examples, back in 2020, Illinois announced it would designate a certain number of dispensary and growing licenses to what lawmakers called social equity applicants. Here's how that went. By May 1st, the state will award 75 new recreational use dispensary licenses to diversify an industry that is mostly owned by white men. Social equity applicants get priority. There are points built into the application for what, who is a social equity um, applicant, what communities you come from, how have you been touched by this um, over the course of your life. Including more points for applicants who have marijuana arrests in their past. Barbershop owner Danny Joe Sorge is one of them, but he and so many others face a daunting task of getting through the application process. The application itself is very lengthy. It's a 400 page application, and you have to have certain resources and infrastructure in place just to navigate the completion of it. This application is harder than my grad school application. <laughs> Two years later, Illinois' Cannabis Social Equity Program is still struggling to actually award licenses to disadvantaged applicants. 
As the Chicago Tribune recently found, the complicated and costly application scoring process ended up last year with just 21 of 937 social equity applicants qualifying for the initial lottery to get one of the 75 licenses for the retail outlets known as dispensaries. Furthermore, as a result of the program's extreme and ongoing inefficiency, the state is also now caught up in several costly lawsuits. To date, literally zero new businesses have come out of the social equity program. A very similar scenario is currently playing out in Arizona, which tried to institute its own cannabis social equity program by earmarking a whopping total of 26 social equity dispensary licenses for low-income people with prior weed convictions. Unfortunately, as an expose by the Phoenix New Times found, it turns out the majority of applications for these social equity licenses came from investors or people connected to established cannabis companies already operating in multiple states. So, as you can imagine, that whole program is also now tied up in a lawsuit. Meanwhile, other states appear to have learned very little from these bureaucratic failures. New York, which will begin rolling out recreational dispensaries by the end of the year, appears to be going down a similar path. In March, New York announced that it would grant its first 100 dispensary licenses to people with past marijuana convictions as part of a cannabis equity initiative. However, the catch is that the state is also requiring that, in addition to having a past weed conviction, applicants must submit financial statements and other paperwork showing that they're already operating a legal and profitable business in the state, which, to say the least, really narrows down the pool of who's eligible. As journalist Ben Gilbert put it, to get a cannabis sales license in New York, you need to have a prior conviction and also two years of ownership of a profitable legal business. You essentially need to fit into a Venn diagram of nobody. Worse still is that the complicated guidelines and Byzantine application processes are really only the beginning. As a recent investigative piece in The New Republic found, even when people do manage to get a hold of coveted social equity licenses, they frequently find themselves without the resources to actually get their cannabis businesses off the ground. Bank loans are not an option as most banks refuse to do business with an industry-breaking federal law, author Amanda Lewis wrote. As a result, cannabis business owners often end up forced to turn to specialized cannabis investors that very often engage in predatory practices. According to Lewis, cannabis companies that incubate social equity applicants might provide loans at 12 to 17 percent interest rates when the U.S. average is 3 to 7 percent. They might require the equity applicant to stock the incubating company's product purchased at locked-in rates above market value or stipulate that the social equity applicant's business can only ever be sold to the bigger company for a predetermined amount. More cynical financiers might simply offer the equity applicant a $35,000 salary in exchange for total control over the business. So, judging by the record to date, cannabis social equity as a program supposedly meant to benefit the very communities hit hardest by the war on drugs has failed miserably on its own terms. There's also another issue at stake. The problem with cannabis equity is not simply that these programs aren't reaching enough black and brown people, or that they're mired in red tape, or that they open the door to predatory loan schemes, although all of those things are undoubtedly true. The more fundamental problem is that the entire notion of cannabis equity currently rests on the assumption that we can achieve some kind of social justice through the market and by simply encouraging entrepreneurship. But the truth is that even if the cannabis equity application process in every state worked perfectly and 100% of social equity licenses went to social equity applicants rather than to affluent business owners or brokers for big weed, that would still represent only a few hundred people nationwide who get a shot at participating in weed capitalism, which, by the way, doesn't even come with a guarantee of financial success. Meanwhile, keep in mind that between 2001 and 2010, there were over 8 million marijuana arrests in the U.S., the vast majority for possession. And ironically, several states that have legalized the sale of recreational marijuana still make it incredibly difficult for residents to expunge their past marijuana convictions. To further put into perspective how limited the returns on cannabis equity are, let's consider a path not taken, state-owned and state-run weed dispensaries. Yes, we all know Americans shudder at the thought of state control, particularly over our consumer products. 
But when you consider that private sector weed sales have already topped over $12 billion in the state of Colorado since 2014, there's an argument that state-run dispensaries would actually generate a huge infusion of revenue that could go to funding public goods like education, healthcare, and infrastructure. Yes, states already collect taxes on weed sales, but what if even more of that money was public? These funds could even potentially provide financial compensation for people who have served time for marijuana offenses or whose past convictions have made it difficult for them to find jobs or housing. By contrast, the private sector cannabis industry is really only set up to enrich just a few lucky business owners. There's also at least one successful precedent for the state-run model. In Pennsylvania, the state currently owns and runs all liquor stores. This not only generates hundreds of millions of dollars in net income for Pennsylvania each year, but also creates thousands of union jobs. Shout out, by the way, to UFCW Local 1776. There's even some evidence that, contrary to myths about the wonders of free market competition, state-run liquor stores actually help keep liquor prices down. So if you ask me, there's no reason why state-operated weed dispensaries couldn't theoretically work in the same way. Instead of messing around with miserable half-baked equity plans to try to make weed businesses a little more diverse, why not just take the private sector out of the equation completely and create an industry where sales and profits actually go to the public good? The Chicago Tribune once described cannabis social equity as a program, quote, designed to give a boost to individuals and communities that need an infusion of free market enterprise the most. But I think that's exactly backwards. The spectacular failure of cannabis equity shows why tinkering with the market and trying to make it just a little bit friendlier and a little more diverse, rather than confronting the zero-sum logic of the market head-on, will always be a losing game. All right, so we are now joined by Lily Geismer. She is an associate professor of history at Claremont McKenna College. She's also the author of Don't Blame Us, Suburban Liberals and the Transformation of the Democratic Party. And her latest book, which we'll be talking about today, is Left Behind, The Democrats' Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality. Lily, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. So let's just dive into your book. Uh, your new book, Left Behind, looks at the legacy of the wing of the Democrats that, you know, we now call the New Democrats. And this is a group that sort of famously includes uh, former President Bill Clinton. And I think just to start, um, I want I do want to get into the history of how the New Democrats came to be. But I want to start by asking you kind of a broader question about how the New Democrats uh, really saw the role of government in fighting poverty and inequality. So, you know, Bill Clinton famously enacts welfare reform um, and deregulates the financial sector. And, you know, I think uh, watchers of The Jacobin Show are probably pretty familiar with the idea of, say, like corporate Democrats or neoliberal Democrats. Um, but I think that's something that's really interesting about your book is you point out that just calling them corporate Democrats or saying that they're Republican light um, is really only part of the story, or it, it really doesn't get at the whole picture, because regardless of the policy outcomes of the new Democrats, uh, you point out that they really did see themselves in some ways as continuing the legacy of FDR and the New Deal. So uh, I want to start by asking you this. You say that the new democratic approach can be summed up with the mantra, doing well by doing good. So explain the slogan and um, how it sort of represents both a continuation of some aspects of New Deal liberalism, but also in other ways, uh, a significant departure. Yeah, thank you so much for the question. And it shows such sort of great engagement with the book and its argument. I mean, a, a critical part of it was to try to understand this idea of sort of saying that Bill Clinton is just like the Republicans or the Democrats, I mean, this kind of lumping together of those types of things. And I think it's absolutely true that in many ways, the outcomes are um, are similar and that many of the things that sort of Reagan and the Reagan wing of the Republican Party and Reagan's administration tried to do actually occurred under Bill Clinton. And the classic examples are welfare and deregulation. But I think this critical question around sort of what is the role of government was one thing that I was trying that I really wanted to understand. And in some ways, the book is actually trying to understand like a kind of democratic version of neoliberalism, which I see actually embodied in this this, this phrase, and this idea of doing well by doing good, which is really the idea of there's still a belief in government. Um, so unlike the kind of traditional sort of Reagan or Milton Friedman view of kind of you like government leaves and you like let the market do its thing. They still believe in an idea of kind of government as a catalyst for connecting the public and private sectors. And that's kind of this idea of the doing well and the doing good and putting them together. Um, but in another sort of 
important point is that they they come to believe that the market can um, can they sort of still have this faith in kind of broad New Deal liberal ideals of kind of um, of equality, helping people in need, um, which are kind of critical aspects of both the the um, New Deal and a great society, but believe that the market can achieve those types of things. And so you instead of instead of like the and how I describe this in the book is like. So going back to New Deal, and I think this is often the sort of piece of where the New Deal itself is so complicated. Like the New Deal believed in markets too, but they right. believed that sort of, I mean, they, they, and they believed in public and private partnerships, but they really believed in this idea of kind of keeping that the market does one that achieves economic growth and that the, the, well, the um, government comes in with kind of compensatory or supplementary welfare programs. Like the Clinton New Democrat approach is that those two things come together and that the market can sort of serve that function and you can bring in the market to kind of to to um, to achieve what a, a sort of robust welfare state once did. Um, so you instead of instead of um, instead of providing cash payments, you, it's jobs and entrepreneurship. Um, it's the, I mean, that's the kind of that's the kind of thinking of this this type of approach. So let's talk a little bit about how uh, the new the new Democrats kind of came to be. Uh, you trace this back to the creation of a kind of mysterious group called the Democratic Leadership Council. Uh, what exactly is the DLC, and how did this group sort of help propel the new Democrats to power? Yeah, so there. I mean, it's, it's fascinating because to many people, they they were this they were sort of at the center of American politics um, for a brief period, but have kind of fallen out of fashion. And they actually, I mean, the the the, the story actually even goes deeper than the DLC um, to this the, the, this kind of iterations of of Democrats coming into office in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties. And there was this like there, there was this like obsessive quest to figure out a name for them. Um, so the first name is the Watergate Babies, and then because um, they come into office, and then. They're they're actually called um, the neoliberals for a while, so they're like the first neoliberals. And then my favorite name is the Atari Democrats. Um, right. so I wrote a piece for Jacobin about a year, um, several years ago. But then they they um, it becomes New Democrats under the DLC, and they're mm-hmm. a group of people. Um, it's a combination of um, members of Congress who are part of this kind of Watergate baby group that kind of thought the new the um, the Democratic Party was sort of out of date. Like one of their big mantras was the kind of solutions of the. They started with the solutions of the 70s can't solve the problems. Um, sorry, the problems of the 30s can't solve the problems of the 70s, and they update that to the problems of the 80s. Um, but they believe in the kind of old style of New Deal, the, the kind of New Deal um, liberalism is not working, both in terms of its political economy and also in terms of its democratic, in terms of its coalitions, um, and especially are concerned about the Democratic Party's um, feels that the Democratic Party is too beholden to special interest groups, especially to the labor movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and the that's one group. And then there's also this group of kind of moderate um, Southern Democratic governors, um, people like um, Chuck Robb of Virginia, um, who really believe that the party is the what, what's hurting the Democrats um, is the fact that they're, they're not trying to win over kind of moderate white Southerners, um, like the kind of people who voted for them. And I should say this, they, their emergence, they come together actually at the 1984 Democratic um, Convention. Um, and initially, it's where they had their first meeting. Um, and there's this idea that the kind of Democratic Party is in, in, is in shambles. And they're really frustrated with this kind of the um, the decision or the the nomination of Walter Mondale, who they see mm-hmm. as kind of this this like real sort of failed Democrat who's too close to who's who's too close to labor movement, um, and that they then decide to sort of form this group called the Democratic Leadership Council. So it's primarily it's primarily politicians, um, actually solely politicians, and and overwhelmingly white um, white male politicians. Um, um, in um, mostly from the South and the West, um, mm-hmm. they do have Dick Gephardt's their first um, is their first um, head because he's like from Missouri and that seems like that's diversification. Um, but then they they get into a lot of trouble for how how I mean a lot of people call them kind of this like that it's like a return of the Dixiecrats. Right. They do try to they do make efforts to kind of diversify, but their real goal so that's kind of the the inside baseball part of them. Um, the um, the their real goal is to kind of transform the Democratic Party, um, mm-hmm. and they really want to kind of and it's this idea of new Democrats that we're going to like remake who the party is, um, and within that idea is to um, to make it much more to make it in um, in line with this kind of constituency of appealing to 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 sort of swing voters, especially former 
sort of moderates who are seeming to drift toward the Republican Party, but also to remake the priorities of the party. Um, and so one of, by 1990, like one of their core mantras is like, we have to, we have to create opportunity, not gov- expand opportunity, not government. Mm-hmm. Um, and how you do that is through um, market-oriented means. Right. Um, and especially in this kind of new economy, tech um, sectors of, um, of tech, finance, and trade. So that's mm-hmm. really their, that's really their, their sort of vision. Yeah. So let's dive into some of those policies now, because you had just mentioned uh, the new Democrats really started to turn away from labor, uh, not not accidentally, but actively. Right. And we really think of organized labor as kind of the backbone of the New Deal uh, coalition. But then, of course, as you mentioned, by the 90s, the new Democrats are sort of actively seeking to undermine the influence of labor in the Democratic Party. Um, Can you say a little bit more about what motivated this turn away from labor and then what they did to kind of push the labor movement out? Yeah, I mean, so there's a um, there. This is this was the part that was sort of I actually would say it was the most surprising to me because I'd written in my first book about this kind of the reorientation of the um, the Democrats towards more sort of um, suburban knowledge workers, mm-hmm. um, and I hadn't realized how deliberate that was actually until I worked on this project. Um, but um, but a lot of it was this idea that kind of the labor movement was dragging the party down and kind of both in terms of it's like sort of two in trying to sort of tailor electoral strategies that way, that kind of making making labor the kind of sense of the backbone, which it had been for so long. Um, and I mean, some of it was this idea that there was too many backroom dealings and that like the sort of AFL-CIO had become this like bloated bureaucracy that they opposed that's that was part of the issue that there was like it wasn't it was it wasn't like transparent enough um and this in the kind of some of the older relationships um that was a key piece of it but the other side of it it actually has to do i mean it's economic but they kind of see that um that manufacturing and like and um industry is um in the past and that like really what is going to sort of save the democrats and save the economy is to turn towards the new economy and so mm-hmm. that is in sectors that are um that are non-unionized um and so that's a kind of critical piece too so this kind of coalition question of kind of how do you capture trying to sort of tailor a, a democratic party coalition around labor is not going to win elections but then the other side is like the american economy cannot be wedded to um, heavily unionized sectors. And so that's really what's drawing, drawing their, their, this particular strategy and approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that brings up that another key part of the new Democrats platform was kind of embracing free trade, right? Like Clinton famously pushes through NAFTA in the 1990s. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about that kind of macroeconomic component a little more, because I think that's really interesting. And, and, you know, when I was reading your book, um, it, kind of seemed like the perfect example of how, you know, the new Democrats may have started with some really good intentions. Like they weren't just trying, at least from what I understand, they weren't just trying to, you know, enrich corporations and, you know, destroy American jobs. Although obviously, you know, many decades later, that's clearly what happened. Um, But they really built a specific industrial policy. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's so, I mean, no, and I appreciate that. I mean, that's one of the things I really wanted to understand is like, what what was their thinking and motivation? And I think mm-hmm. so often like, there's this focus on just like strategy and that like, I mean, so I'll just, this is one of the core kind of things I wanted to sort of get at in the book is that there's this idea that like the embrace of the market and it's sort of in cynical terms was like Bill Clinton. So things like NAFTA were just all about getting elected. Like they just <laughs> wanted to get power and get elected. And like, it didn't, there wasn't anything actually ideological about this or an understanding. And I actually like really wanted to think about what, what, what were the kind of intents here and like yeah. to get at their words, they believed that this was going to do something. And I think mm-hmm. especially, I mean, so in the start, be, really beginning in the 1970s, they begin that people, they begin to see um, the Democrat, the sort of wing of the democratic party um, begins to kind of see that the future lies in, um, in, um, in globalization and trade. Um, and that that's the kind of that's the roots to kind of re- solving the nation's economic problems. So sort of emerging from the kind of 19, the, the recessions of the 1970s um, and that you sort of invest in those areas. And so they, they're actually big believers in industrial policy, um, but industrial policy of um, but an industrial policy approach that's. Um, that is focused on um, on things as like a tech sector. Right. Um, so it's like it's it's not it's not going back to like they sort of I mean there's this they a lot of the theories are based on and this is where it gets like really nitty gritty but um, on um, on economists like Lester Thoreau who believed in kind of sunrise versus sunset industries and so manufacturing is like a sunset industry and that can be that can be sent overseas like you can sort of you can like the, all of that kind of manufacturing can happen somewhere in um, in the global south. But that the U.S. should sort of focus its policies primarily on these kind of this, these kind of more knowledge oriented work. Um, and mm-hmm. another actually critical 
person who who it promotes these ideas is actually Robert Reich um, yeah. <laughs> in the 1970s, 1980s. Um, and um, is very much sort of this is the way this is kind of an inevitability in the United States needs to like get to, to sort of save the economy as you get on track. And this is going to help. I mean, I think the roots of this also comes to this idea um, like that is a relentless focus of Democratic Party policy since the 1970s and 80s, but it's on worker retraining. So mm-hmm. you retrain like you retrain former workers and then they can sort of get these sort of more um, knowledge oriented jobs for the future. And that's really the kind of thinking of, of this this approach. Right. So another uh, major focus of your book is microfinance, right? So um, I, I want to I zero in on that for a second. Why did Bill Clinton and the New Democrats kind of gravitate to this idea of like microloans and microenterprise? Uh, and, and how does this idea of microenterprise micro really exemplify the New Democrats' approach to dealing with domestic economic inequality? Yeah, so this interesting, the interesting sort of, one of the things the book looks at is this effort to kind of use microfinance, which we traditionally think of as a, um, as a, as a international, a tool of international, um, sort of economic development, um, in the United States. And this doesn't, it, it like the, I guess the flash forward is it doesn't work, but, um, so that's why it's not, it's not told a lot, but, um, but, um, the beginning in the 1980s, um, the, um, Bill Clinton brings Muhammad Yunus, the founder of Grameen Bank, who's seen as kind of the, like the father of microfinance, microenterprise, um, to the U.S. and this idea of kind of giving small loans um, to poor people so they can start their own businesses. And I think it's a real, there's a couple of things. Like one is it's it's this growing faith in entrepreneurship um, and this kind of idea of kind of an entrepreneurial economy, which is also what they're promoting at the kind of macro level for, mm-hmm. the, you know, that's sort of at the heart of kind of new economy thinking. But at the same time, it's this notion of sort of helping poor poor people, both that will sort of sustain economic growth. Um, and so Bill Clinton brings it to um, the Mississippi, or the Arkansas Delta, um, where he, when he's governor, um, with the idea that this can kind of stimulate the economy, but also help help poor people become more self-sufficient. And I think it really is at the heart of kind of that, uh, that kind of thinking that like, this is where the market itself can do good, um, mm-hmm. that it's helping, pe- it's, it's not, it's helping people, um, find a sense of sort of self self-sufficiency. And actually there is this kind of core part of particularly Bill Clinton's thinking. And this is also what he sort of the ideas of welfare to work too, um, which is like in the, like the psychological power of having a job. Um, and, um, that becomes important, but I think one of the things actually is really critical. And this goes back to the question of, um, um, union of, of labor as well. Um, is so um, it, it looked, one of the reasons that the sort of places like the Arkansas Delta were in such trouble and needed needed programs like this is that they had lost their um, all of their um, most of the they were mostly like one factory towns and the factories mm-hmm. had gone overseas. Right. And it turned out that many people actually didn't want to start like there was this notion of like the poor as entrepreneur and that like every sort of like turn your hobby into a business. Um, so if you like love making coffee cake, like you can go, you know, then that should be your business. Um, and that's like, that maybe does work for a few people, but the problem, one of the things that came up was that like a lot of people actually like the stability of a wage of a wage right. um, job. I mean, they're, they're, like the things that, that come for having a job where you have um, like, you have stable employment is really critical. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, what's not provided if you're, if you're your own boss. So right. there's this idea of selling like empowerment through, through um, having your own business, but that, that doesn't do that. And I think another thing is it obscures the class, the critical class differences between like, a, you know, the, the um, like Bill, it's sort of like anyone can be Bill, Bill Gates um, or Steve Jobs who become these like heroes in the 1990s. But like, that's actually not that they're not the same thing as this, this poor, um, this poor black woman who's selling her coffee cake in right. Delta. So right. that's sort of, that's some of the kind of limitations to it. So it's, it's that, that I mean, it, or I would say like critical limitation to it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, so speaking of like, these ideas of empowerment and choice. I want to ask you also about the new Democrats approach to education, because, you know, uh, I, I feel like Democrats historically have sort of thought of themselves or represented themselves as like defenders of public education and allies of teachers unions. And obviously compared to the Republicans, that has usually been true. Um, but, but an interesting thing about the new Democrats is that they were like big proponents of charter schools. So, and again, like, I think that this goes back to kind of these notions of empowerment and choice, right? So can you talk a little bit about why why they were so interested in charter schools and then how the new Democrats um, sought to remake education. Yeah. So the, um, so 
and it is this idea of like education is kind of this critical kind of new deal value. And I think another, another kind of critical part of that is this belief in kind of meritocracy, um, mm-hmm. as like as a sort of core idea, but, um, but, but begin, I mean, there's this longstanding history of kind of, and, it, and I think this, it also is this question of it's a, it's a public good to some degree and sort of something that is, that is from the public sector, but the, the new Democrats actually are the earliest, um, propo- like sort of proponents of charter schools. And I think there's often this, um, I mean, it's one thing that I, when I worked on the book, didn't fully understand is like we tend to think about charter schools more as a kind of Republican um, solution. But um, in the in the 80s and 90s, the Republicans are really pushing vouchers. Um, right now, they've now come back to, but they um, there was, um, but they that was kind of the 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 kind of core idea of kind of what is choice. And the Democrat version, and this goes back to this kind of idea of what government can do is that they, they, they're opposed to, to vouchers because that's like a fully privatized, that's sort of a privatized system. And this is still like sort of working within the, um, the public sector, mm-hmm. but giving people this more, this more of a sense of like your own individual freedom. And that goes to the same thing of kind of promoting entrepreneurship in the same way that you can kind of have a sense of empowerment by choosing what school you want to come into. Another critical piece of it actually is that so a huge aspect of the um, the New Democrat philosophy around government is this idea of the, what is at the time called re- sort of reinventing government, but bringing in techniques of the private sector and the market to make government more efficient. And that's also the thinking around charters, that charters will kind of use these kind of tools of the private sector mm-hmm. um, of more accountability, more competition. Um, so, I mean, the, the thinking on charters is that like they would public schools would have to compete um, with them um, to, and then that would sort of make everything, uh, make a better system. Right. Um, and that's the thinking, that's sort of a lot of the, the kind of philosoph- philosophical idea of kind of why New Democrats and people like Bill Clinton pushed this so um, beginning in the, 19, um, the 1990s. And they still believe in, it's still public charters and they actually are not full advocates of the kind of private management program i mean the sort of the ones that are sort of a prof for profit so it's still like a non-profit system but um but that's a lot of the kind of thinking and it is a really interesting question because i mean one of the one of the um I mean, the teachers unions um actually increased in their power um in the Demo- within the democratic party in the 19 um the 1990 by 19 i think they're the, they're the biggest constituency of um the biggest un- union constituency at the um at the convent, the nineteen ninety two convention, so they actually hold power. Um, and te- teachers unions, and so th- there's a question there of like this kind of um, this kind of sacrificing of that um, particular constituency around this issue. But the mm-hmm. other group that's really does come to really um, advocate charters um, and is a critical partner in the um, the Clinton administration and um, promotion of it is um, the tech sector and Silicon Valley, who really um, promote and advocate this idea. Mm-hmm. So I I feel like as we've been talking, I've been hinting a little bit that I am rather skeptical of a lot of these new democratic policies, right? But I also want to point out, you know, lots of people think of the Clinton era as a time of economic prosperity. Um, You know, he famously had a rare budget surplus. Um, Lots of people, I think, point out that during the 90s, like inflation and unemployment was low. And um, people point out that the poverty rate actually went down during his tenure. So um, I, I guess the question is like, what do these broad indicators miss? And if you, looking back at all of the policies that we really have just gone through, like what is the scorecard here? Did did they work at all? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. So one, and I, I um, and as for maybe the conversation and as reading the book, like I'm, I, I, my skepticism is there too. And so a lot of these programs, but I want to say one thing is like, they're not a lot. So there are a couple of things. Like one is they're not all bad ideas in and of themselves. Like it's just that they can't replace the welfare state. And so mm-hmm. that's one thing that I like really want to emphasize. But I think the other question in this, what you've identified is that that's the classic retort that I have received from, uh, from new Democrat. I mean, <laughs> new Democrats, like that is the kind of, or sort of people who are um, in the more uh, sort of more mainstream Democrats. And this is that that's kind of the story of the nineties. Um, and it is this interesting idea because I'm, I'm so inter- intrigued with this nostalgia for the nineties. Um, right. But I think some of it is, um, is some of that. The issue with it is that's true that, and this goes to this idea that like overall growth did well and this idea, like, so the doing well by doing good, like the economy did well, Mm-hmm. Um, but the issue that that I see sort of coming out of this these questions that I'm kind of like is that um, what a lot these programs did um, is to leave um, is to leave poor and low income people in a much more vulnerable position mm-hmm. um, later for two different reasons. One is the issue of 
the removal, so welfare, so this the efforts to kind of remove, um, to replace the welfare system with work and entrepreneurship. Another critical one that I look at in the book is around public housing um, and to replace public housing with a kind of a more mixed income housing and then also to kind of promote um, promote um, home ownership among, um, among um, marginalized groups. Um, that coupled with, so you have all of these removals of the kind of what was left at that point of the kind of traditional social safety net um, also with um, deregulation. Yeah. Um, and so I think one thing is kind of this relying on the market um, at a moment and relying on the economy and sectors like tech and trade and all of these other things. Like the economy itself was changed dramatically through Clinton era policies um, from the beginning of the 1990s to the end of the 1990s. And so with that, um, it left people by less than a decade later, much, much more vulnerable to um, both to predation. I mean, right. Um, from companies. And that's another thing that like the selling, like corporations can do good and can help people. Um, that, that is both sort of limited, but also is, um, has a predatory dimension to it. But then generally just that, 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 corp, that corp, the private sector cannot, cannot replace what the public sector can and, and what government can do. And I think that that has been very much borne out um, yeah. over the course of the last, um, the, really the last sort of 15 years. Um, right. And so that's what we've seen. So it's sort of in the moment of like 2000 and, you know, um, 2001, when Bill Clinton left office, that wasn't fully apparent. Um, but, but that becomes very apparent, like, um, you know, um, I guess six years later. Right. Um, so that, um, that is some of what I see happening. And then I think the other issue that's really important is the ways in which this, um, this then alienate, I mean, the selling of the market to do good and going around the country and sort of promoting this idea. Um, I think to many people that it, that didn't, it, there, um, it didn't see the, the roots or results of that. And it alienated a lot of people from the, both the, from the democratic party itself, um, and sort of didn't don't no longer either were not voting or then come to actually vote for, um, for Republicans and for right. Trump. So that's right. another critical piece that I think it also like this is this interesting moment because it's this mo the story of kind of democratic party dominance and sort of like, like it's when you know the democrats capture the presidency but at the same time that it sort of sublimated a lot of these other tensions within the kind of democratic party coalition so i think then i want to wrap up by uh bringing the legacy of the new democrats kind of to the present because um again as we've been sort of discussing i think over the last you know two decades we're seeing more and more people, not just on the left, but even members of what we might think of as the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, now increasingly questioning some of these fundamental assumptions that the New Democrats have been pushing. Um, I'm wondering, number one, do you see the New Democrats' influence continuing to persist and continuing to shape the Democratic Party? And then I guess the final question is, what can we do to start uh, rolling back or reversing some of these failed policies and... Um, and, you know, just the inequality that some of these new Democrat policies exacerbated. Yeah, I mean, it's this interesting moment because I think culturally the, Dem the new Democrats don't hold the same power within the Democratic Party. So I think like one thing, I mean, the DLC closes in 2011. Um, the, um, and, you know, w there's been this kind of especially kind of marginalization of Bill Clinton from the, like from the, from the party's kind of big sort of you know, marquees at the conventions or whatever it is. But, um, but so I think that the, on that level, like there's not the same kind of cultural hold that they, that they once had. I think the policies, I mean, this is this thing that like the policies have persisted in various different ways. And I think yeah. one thing is there's not, I think that very much during the Obama administration, there was a kind of celebration of a lot of these ideas um, and sort of things like entrepreneurship and various different other in tech and all of those that, I mean, that is kind of a critical piece. So I think that what's, what's happened is like, there's no longer this kind of selling of like, the market can do good. Like that's not like, I think the Democrat, the Democrat, the sort of big um, candidates have like learned not to say those kinds of things in some capacity that they don't hold the same kind of power that they once did. Um, so that has gone away, but I don't see the replace, like there's not the kind of replacement um, in various different other things. So I think that there's still this commitment to growth that growth can do. Like we sort of look to economic growth as a solution to a lot of problems that has persisted. Mm -hmm. Um and so that's one that's one area. I think there's another question that like a lot of these the kind of people, actual people in the, the that um, many of the kind of pe the people from the both the, the DLC and from um, the Clinton administration now do hold positions in the in the Biden and powerful positions in the Biden administration. So 
so this is, I'm answering it like a six part question. I'm sorry to go on. No, no, that's great. One thing I think um, that I think one area that I see this, the kind of concern, like the kind of return and resurgence is this question around um, how do you build an electoral coalition? Um, and so the, like this tension that the, the was a fight in the 1980s around the Democratic Party about do you focus on trying to win over like moderate, um, moderate kind of swing voters in the suburbs, or do you try to um, really kind of center on um, on marginalized groups? Um, that has been a that tension has really reemerged, and I think one thing that I see I look to is kind of see, or see happening is like things like the midterms is the demo is is Biden and the kind of mainstream of the Democratic Party going back to the idea of like we have to win over moderate Democrat, like moderate, moderate Democrat, moderate Democrats and, and sort of swing voters as the kind of key to the electoral coalition. And that's, that's a, that's a dangerous legacy to some capacity from this. Um, but the other side of like what we can do to change that, like what, what I see is sort of places to change it um, is, is a couple of things. I mean, one is to really is to um, work on reinstituting certain forms of um, regulation yeah, and to sort of think, and to think hard about kind of this, notion. I mean, a lot of these policies come from this idea that you could sort of erase the boundary between the public and private sectors. Um, and, and the efforts to kind of reinstitute those boundaries, I think, are really critical. Um, so, so efforts to kind of rein, reinstitute and, and expand, actually, um, many of those, those kinds of things. To not think that the market can do good. Um, so that's some of, the, some of the critical parts. But also to really shore up the power of, of things like the, um, the labor movement and, and sort yeah. of seeing that happening to me. I mean, that's sort of really critical to sort of understanding. So the other piece of this is the story of the kind of marginalization of labor from having a, a voice both in the party, but like that made me think like sort of nationally. Um, and I think that that sort of in, in really sort of encouraging that to any um, any in any capacity is really critical to kind of coming back, coming, addressing some of the kind of core forms of inequality that became exacerbated in the period that I look at. All right. Lily Geismer's book, again, is Left Behind, The Democrats' Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality. We will link that down below. Lily, thank you so much for your time. It was good to see you. Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.